if you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. I have one other piece of instruction I'd like to do, which is since we've been trying to work this microphone out, if you can't hear, you know, have to give me the signal, you know, and I'll try to lift my voice up a little bit. We're starting a series in the book of Romans today. It will probably take us, my goal is about a year. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous British physician turned preacher, took about ten years and he didn't finish. I'm going to try not to do that. But this letter is a letter of the Apostle Paul written to the church in Rome. And he had never been there. It wasn't one of the churches he had planted, but he certainly heard of it. And his heart was with them as they shared in his faith, a faith in Christ. And because it was his desire to get to Rome, which we'll read even in the passage today, It was his desire to get to Rome, to share in their ministry, to minister to them in some ways, but he was always kept from it. His heart was there, and so what he did was send his ministry in writing. And the the book of Romans was written to a church he didn't know, and so he sent them what really turns out to be the fullest, clearest explanation of what the gospel is in the Bible. And, and of course, that's good for us, for the Lord has preserved for us a very beautiful and thorough picture of His grace to meet our needs. And so we're going to spend, you know, the next few months sort of unearthing what it was that Paul had to say to Rome, and more particularly, what God has to say to us through the book of Romans. Now, as we're going to begin, I want you to see that the first thing that Paul wants to do He wants them to understand that the gospel that he's coming to explain to them is trustworthy and beautiful. Before we read, let's pray that God might help us see what he intended for his church in the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you make your word powerful and effective to us? While this was Paul's writing to Rome, By your Spirit's work, it was your words to us. And you have preserved them for almost 2,000 years now. And for that, we give thanks and we ask you, give us your Spirit as well, that we might understand and apply these words, that you would build your church today as you have built it throughout the generations upon your Word. Make us know Christ because of what we read. We pray for your blessing and for your Spirit's work in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, By His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in this gospel of His Son, that without 
ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order as well as among, uh, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. This is God's word. It is completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. The news would have spread through Rome for sure, but probably through much of the Roman Empire. There was an uprising in Germania, the north uh, western part of the Roman Empire. The uprising was trying to throw off the shackles of Rome and to undo their oppressors. But it, it had a, a, at least some portent of threat to the Roman Empire. There was a great peace spread throughout the Roman Empire. The Pax Romana, historians would call it. When the whole world just about knew peace, a peace that, that has yet to be matched in the rest of the world since the Roman Empire. And here were some, though, some who were threatening it with revolt and rebellion. The barbarians, as the civilized would call, those who lived in Europe. And so, Tiberius Caesar sends the army to go and to quell the rebellion. And as the army marches off, you know, wives say goodbye, their husbands, children to their parents who are marching, the single men heading out to whoever would have seen them, maybe their parents. They march off and it begins the long silence as they know the army has gone, but there's no CNN, there's no easy way to transmit information. They would just have to wait and wait and wait and wait. And then one day, you would see the cloud of dust in the horizon. And the first thing you would see are probably three or four of the fastest horses from the whole company of the army riding in with riders. And as they get into earshot, you would hear them say, We have gospel. We have gospel. The, the Germanians have been, the barbarians have been vanquished. There's peace again. Hail to Caesar, our victor and our savior, we have gospel. You see, that word gospel was used pretty commonly when it came to emperors. They would say that we have good news that we're bringing. The emperor has won a victory for us. Or, when a new heir to the throne was born or adopted into the family, they would send out riders to the corners of the empire. And as they went, we have gospel, an emperor has been born. Or, and this was the best of them all, they would send out many, many riders to all the towns when the emperor was crowned. They would go and announce the good news to the cities. Emperor Caesar Augustus has been crowned. Adjust your ways and bow your knee. Hail to our Lord. That, that was the language that they would use. And so it was revolutionary when the New Testament writers stole that word and said, this is about Jesus. It was borderline treason for them to do that. And here you see Paul taking that word and, and using it quite boldly 
I am a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for this gospel, not of the emperor, not of Caesar, but of God. Good news of God, His victory, His crowning, I've come to announce it. Now, because those are such incendiary words, he would need to be able to make a a pretty good defense of why he used it. And so I want you to see, he he appealed to some trustworthy witnesses. He says, verse 2, this gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He says, what I'm going to tell you in the book of Romans is not new, it's all old. It's all stuff you've heard before. God gave this message with the prophets in the Old Testament and everything I'm about to say is stuff you've already read and already heard. Now, apostles were given explicit authority by God to speak His Word. They were the New Testament version of thus saith the Lord, what the prophets said in the Old Testament. And so when you heard of an apostle or you got his writings, you were to treat it with the same respect as the Old Testament, it was God's Word. And yet he still says, it's not just my authority, I'm only reiterating what you've heard in the Old Testament. It's all stuff. Now, when you read the book of Romans, you're going to find he really believed that. Fifty-seven times in 16 chapters, he cites the Old Testament. And he has other allusions and references too. He says, my gospel, the one I'm declaring to you in the authority of Jesus has already been declared to you. God's been preparing you for it for a long time. This isn't new. You know, it's tradition in a lot of churches today during their worship service to have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading on the topic they're going to kind of study in the sermon. And the reason they would do that is because whatever is said in the New Testament was already said in the Old. Whatever was said in the Old is going to be said again in the New. They go together. There's a seminary professor, an Old Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he is well known for his, you know, kind of comfortable, fun teaching style. He's he's uh, witty and clever, and and he teaches the Old Testament and helps people see it. And a lot of times, you know that experience, right? Where someone opens something up in the Old Testament, and you're like, ah, oh, I had never seen it before, but now I can't stop seeing it. He was like that, and his. Now, students would know he would go to conferences and he would always get asked to do the Old Testament portion of the conference. They said, you know, Professor, you should try the New Testament. I think you would like it. So he told his students sometime later, well, I read it. It's very good. I do like the New Testament. It reminds me very much of the Old. And that's what Paul was saying. The Old Testament is about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so is the New. If you had been with us during the holiday seasons, you know that's what we did. We looked back at Genesis 3, the very beginning of the history of man. And we see the gospel brought in there. God promises to send a descendant of the woman who would overturn the sin that's come into the world. You saw it in the priest. You saw it in the kings. You saw it in the prophets. You saw it throughout the Old Testament is about Jesus and His coming. And so, Paul says, look, what I'm going to tell you is not new. It's quite old. Now, here's why that really matters to you. 
you'll find a lot of skeptics about Christianity today to look on the history of the church and how sort of theology has developed. And they would say, you know, it's not really that this is authentic Christianity. There were a lot of authentic Christianities early on. And it was those who had some kind of political leverage who squashed out the little ones and consolidated their power. And so Christianity developed along lines of politics and power. And so your religion is really just a man-made political game. That's the idea. But here's the thing. You know what really undoes that argument? Is that everything that sort of came out of those political power games resonates with the Old Testament. Your Christianity today flows from the Old Testament as much as it does from the New. And so you had this long-standing, hundreds of years old document, the Old Testament, or collection of documents, that testified to what Christianity would be, and lo, here it is. It was not that you had power games, but it was the church saying, what did the Old Testament say? We believe it. Here it is in the New. Paul says, it's not new. You, You can trust this Gospel. But it's not just that the prophets and the Word of God had testified to it. In verse 3, he says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to flesh, he was human, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Paul says the resurrection, that's the key. Now, the resurrection really is the key to Christianity. It is the, the, the key that unlocks everything about it. And it is either the greatest masterpiece or it is the height of foolishness. The first sermon where they announced the resurrection of Jesus at Pentecost happened about seven weeks after the resurrection. That's not long enough for a legend to build. And, you know, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine you flipping on TV and on the news is some guy saying, you know, really, we know for sure that you all should be conservative Republicans because Ronald Reagan has come back from the dead and told us. Now, you all giggle at that, snicker a little, or at least smile. It's okay in church. And uh, you think, that's just craziness. You would look at that guy and he is a lunatic. You are skeptical about the idea of a resurrection. And you know what? The people who first heard it in the New Testament era were just as skeptical as you. Paul was preaching in Athens on the Areopagus and the philosophers were there and he began to describe to them the God that they did not know. And he said, He has come to show you His truth in His Son, Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified and is risen from the dead. And the philosophers began to laugh and mock Him. Just as you would. Someone who who called on a resurrection today. It was just as unbelievable. It's become familiar to you. We talk about it all the time. But it was unbelievable. It was foolish to those who heard the apostles first. But at the same time, it was the confirmation of who Jesus was. No one else says resurrection. Right? No no, no one else can say that. Islam says the prophets don't even die. They just sort of ascend. Uh, Hindus say maybe you're reincarnated. Christianity says, no, 
our Savior rose from the dead, and that's how you know it's real. And what's more is, that makes no sense if the apostles didn't actually see it. The apostles would all suffer a martyr's death for their faith, except for John. They would all be persecuted. They would all be beaten. They would all be exiled. They would all be punished. They would suffer greatly because they would not bend from this message of resurrection. And the reason they wouldn't bend from it was because they knew it was true. I mean, think about it. <coughs> Excuse me. The apostles when they were with Jesus at the end of His life, ran from whoever saw them. Peter called down curses on himself because a servant girl said, I think you were with Jesus. And only seven or eight weeks later, they were beaten and told, don't preach about Jesus. And they said, you tell us what you want and you do your worst. We have to preach. What changed? They said, I'm not afraid of dying anymore because I've seen a risen Savior. And I know I will rise with Him. Death held no fear anymore. Something changed. And the resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation. But it's also the explanation. We talk about the cross as the way in which your sins are paid for. That God's punishing your sins in Christ on the cross. And that is true. Your sins are erased from you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we talk about the cross, we will later in the book of Romans, on how you were tied to Christ and His death broke the power of sin in your life. And that is true. And so we are a religion of the cross. But not just the cross. The cross plus resurrection. Jesus did not just die for your sins. He rose to give you new life. And those two things must go together. Jesus is the victorious Savior because He took on sin and He took on death and He said, I win. Because He was risen. It's the proof. It's the the powerful witness. Just as the Old Testament witnesses to the Gospel, His resurrection witnesses to the Gospel. And now, Paul says, eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses tell you about the Gospel. Listen to what he says next. After He was declared to be the Lord through power by the resurrection of the dead, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Here's what Paul is saying. We apostles, we're the people who knew Jesus and walked with Him. We saw Him on a day-to-day basis. Now, Paul would not be the one who's perfect. So let's, let's, let's take him for a, hold off for him for a second. There are the other disciples. Those who walked with Jesus, saw His ministry, experienced His theology embodied in Christ. And they were the ones saying, this was the Lord. It's one thing for a guy to sort of keep his distance and try to persuade people he's somehow divine or a prophet. He's a really amazing person, but he only comes out at a moment. But Jesus lived with people for three years. I can barely live with someone for three minutes before they discover where I'm a fraud. Jesus lived with them for three or three and a half years And now they worship Him. That makes no sense unless He is who He says He is. And the apostles say we have touched grace with our hands. Now think about that. The idea of grace, the free grace of God that forgives your sins and makes you acceptable to God and makes you move toward holiness. 
Where do you experience that in life? Where? Sometimes. Sometimes you get a tiny taste of it maybe in your marriage. When you have sinned against your spouse in some you know, foolish way and your spouse just forgives you freely and you get a tiny taste of grace, but then they remember something else you did and get mad at you again. Been there? I'm, I'm the guy who does that. What I want you to see is that they walk with Jesus and they knew a guy who accepted them as they were and yet made them holy. Two. They got the grace that you and I only taste in tiny ways. They live with Him. They touched Him. They walked with Him. They woke up in the morning and there He was. They sinned against Him and He forgave them and made them holy. Philip Yancey tells the story of a, a, a counselor in Chicago who met a woman whose life has gotten so low that it stunned a counselor. Now, when you stun a counselor who's used to dealing with problems, that's bad. In fact, the counselor said, as he listened to her story, he felt like he might become criminally liable just knowing what's going on in her life. And he was at a loss, and he said to her, um, have you thought about going to church? And she said, why would I want to go to church? I already feel bad enough. You know, his point was that somehow Jesus could be holy and welcome sinners and lead them toward holiness all at the same time. And the church, sometimes we're very accepting. Come on in. Be with us. Even when you're messed up, come on. But often when we're accepting, we're not good at helping you move toward holiness. And sometimes we're good at helping you move toward holiness because we'll point out your flaws and say, get your act together. But then we're not very accepting. Somehow Jesus did both. Sinners flocked to Him. And He was holy. I, I don't know how He did it, but the apostles watched it and they said, we know we saw it. You can believe us. And Paul, who comes along later, he's the chief persecutor of the church. And overnight, he becomes one who preaches Christ. And, it, and the church's greatest church planting. He drops off the map for about three years after his conversion. And what Paul tells us is he learned the gospel from Jesus during those three years. We don't know how that happened. But Paul said, I know Jesus. And I know the grace. I've touched it. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And now I'm telling you, the Old Testament, the resurrection, the eyewitnesses, and then the church. In verse 7, he says, To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That church in Rome, we've heard about it over here in Asia Minor. That church in Rome, we've heard about it all the way to India. That church in Rome, it's going over to Spain. We know your works. We've heard of your faith. Your testimony to the grace of God is going to the world. And listen, that was God's intention. The church would be that faithful testimony. That believable, credible witness to Christ throughout the ages. When I was ordained to be a minister, I had to go through my trials, examinations. And they examined me, 
on you know, knowing how much knowledge I had of the Bible. They examined me on my theology. They examined me on sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism and how they worked in the church and what they mean. And I thought those were, those were the riches. They also had a section on church history. And I thought that was kind of a throwaway section. I was a little bit arrogant. Well, I still am a little bit arrogant. But the reason, I thought, they, why does this matter? Why do we have to do this? And they told me that that showed up in my exam. I obviously didn't have as strong a, a grasp, grasp on church history. They told me I needed to do some work. And they were right. And I want you to know that the reason you need the witness of the church is the witness of the church in history is going to alert you to every place the church starts to go off the rails today. You know, if you get a church that is starting to say, oh, you know, doctrine and theology don't matter, experience and emotional experience is really the only thing that matters in Christianity, that's pretty popular in, in some areas of Christianity today. And I want you to know it's not new. In the 1500s, there were mystics. And if you saw what happened, you would know how they got off the rails. You see the signs, and it prepares you to go, okay, that's not the way to go. You want to find uh, churches today who are articulate about theology and know their doctrine well, but seem cold and distant from the world? Listen, there were scholastics in the Middle Ages who were just like that. And you can see how they got off the rails from church history. And, and what's more than that, you know that church history is marked by all kinds of corruption and flaws and brokenness, people who are power hungry, all these things that Christianity says no to, and yet it was here in the church. How does the church survive that? Well, it's because of the grace of God said, I won't let the church die. The church's enduring life is part of that testimony that God says there will always be a faithful witness. And even when the church was its most corrupt and darkest, there was John Huss and Wycliffe, and they were standing there saying no, even to the church, because there was a, a faithful testimony. Now, here's what this means. You who believe, you who believe the Old Testament and its witness about Christ, you who come to say, you know what, that resurrection sounds crazy and foolish, but I think it's true and I have no other explanation for this, so I believe it too. And if, if you've come to believe these apostolic witnesses saying we've touched grace and we know it and we feel it and we're telling you, if you've come to believe them, then now you're that church giving testimony to it. You've become the church in Rome whose faith is being heard in all the world. And you know what? The fruit of this Gospel... Those are the witnesses. The fruit of it is that you will want to see that testimony grow. Look at what Paul says. This is the last thing, and I'll be very quick. In verse 11, he says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you. You see, what Paul said was, my pay in this ministry of the Gospel and my knowledge of the Gospel is to see others become stronger in it. That's the reward that I reap. I see people come to faith and I see them grow in it. And so, here's the question. Here's how you will know if the Gospel is really taking root in your heart. Do you long for other people to get stronger in it? Do you long for people who don't know it to know it? 
I want you to ask that question. Now, I warn you, there's a counterfeit to that. There's a sense in which we say, you know what, I really want to see my church grow. I really want to see people come and, and, and participate in church and hear the gospel. I want them to be a part of us. And that's a good impulse. And there can be a reason we want the church to grow, which is, I see Christ, and I hear Him, and I know Him, and I want other people to know Him. That's what Paul's talking about. There's also a way to say, I want my church to grow because it makes me feel impressive. Because I have to go, I'm with that church that's getting bigger. I'm, I'm with the people who are kind of movers and shakers and doing stuff, and, and it, it makes me feel good about me. And you see, those are two completely different impulses. You see, the Gospel puts in your heart this desire for others to know it. And your words will become the avenue by which they do it. And your life will become the avenue by which you long to see people come to know Christ. You will have a heart for it. It will shape what you say and what you do and what you think and how you spend your time. It will shape everything. Do you have that desire? What if I don't? What if I don't feel like that today? Or I haven't for a long time? Or I certainly don't know if I ever have? What if I don't care? And what if I do care, but it's really I discover that selfish impulse that's the counterfeit like you said? Let me tell you what to do. Go back and listen to the witnesses again. Hear that Old Testament describe the glories of the unimaginable that God Himself would come in flesh to rescue us. Spend some time meditating on the fact that God Himself came in flesh to die and to conquer death for you. Take a few moments to listen to those apostles and, and hear them say, we have touched and felt grace and now we share Him with you. You listen to Him and you, you meditate on that Gospel that they said. You take it in because it's the only way you'll ever want to give it out. If you don't have the heart to see other people know the gospel, what you need is to hear it again for yourself and, and dig in and take it in. Uh, a lot of you have probably had this experience where you go up here to when uh, the market or a la carte Alice is putting out samples. They've got the table spread. and You ever eavesdrop on the conversations afterward? Hey, did you have that pink stuff? Sometimes they know what it is. Or, 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 or did you have that orange sauce? Oh my goodness. You've got to go try it. That's the way it works. And it's good. And listen, if we'll talk about the food like that, wait till you'll taste and see how good God is. And then you'll go, you know what I found? You've got to go try this. You, you've got to know what I know. God is good. You should hear the good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, grant us the grace to receive this gospel on the testimony of these faithful witnesses. And then may it capture our hearts so that we long to give it away to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.